pretty hot, isn't it? I wish I'd taken off the layers. It's hot. Are you cold? No, I'm hot. Oh, you're hot. Yeah, are you? It's really, I'm, I feel like stripping off, but I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do it now. Hold on. No. Oh, okay, right. All right, we're going. We're going out. Yeah. Inga mana, inga reo, inga iwi, tēnā koutou, ko Anne Kennedy ahau, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, a very warm welcome to this session of the Auckland Writers Festival, Waituhi o Tāmaki. Um, the name of our session is We Can't Not Mention It, with Stephanie Johnson and Fiona Farrell. Um, I'd like to acknowledge deeply um, Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke on whose land we sit for the session. In a moment, I'll introduce our guests um, and the topic, and um, there'll be some readings and some discussion, and at the, near the end of the session, there'll be an opportunity for you, the audience, some us, to ask some questions of the panellists. Um, before we start, please check your phone is on silent. You don't want to be that person. Um, and if you're going to share about the event on social media, which um, Auckland Writers Festival greatly encourages you to do, um, please do so with consideration for those around you. So, it's my great pleasure to introduce our panellists, two writers who are much read and much known and much loved. Um, so, um, you know, they don't need much introduction, and indeed my introduction is going to be just a sort of a smattering of their achievements, otherwise we'd be here all afternoon. Um, Fiona Farrell has published non-fiction, drama, poetry and novels. Her debut novel, the Skinny Louis book, won a New Zealand Book Award. Um, her Decline and Fall on Savage Street won an NZSA, that's New Zealand Society of Authors Heritage Book Award. She's a recipient of the Prime Minister's Award for Fiction um, and was appointed an officer of the ONZM for Services to Literature. Her most recent novel, which is what we'll mostly focus on today, is The Deck. And that's from Pen Penguin Random House. Stephanie Johnson is co-founder of this very festival. Where here because of Stephanie and Peter Wells, who founded this festival years ago. Um, <clears throat> she's also published um, <clears throat> poetry, plays, short stories, and 20-something novels. I don't think anyone really knows. I think you don't even know how many, but <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Yeah, many novels. Um, also a recipient of the... Um, PM's Award for um, Fiction just last year and was appointed officer on, of the ONZM for Services to Literature. And her most recent novel is Kind, and that's the one we'll mostly talk about today. They're both COVID novels. So please welcome our guests. <laughs> We can't not talk about it. That's the title of this session. It being the pandemic, COVID. 
that we've all endured um, in different ways, and personally, and communally, globally, for close to three and a half years now. So it's been a thing. So both Fiona and Stephanie um, have written novels that take on COVID as a topic, um, as a sort of bouncing off point for character exploration, and as a sort of comment on how society has coped or not. Um, it's interesting that these novels have similarities. Um, they're, um, they have uh, writer um, protagonists. They're, they have multiple, uh, multiple points of view, but they're also very different and original. Um, so it's great to have the opportunity to discuss them together here today. So um, I want to start by um, just asking quite simply what sparked these novels for each of you. Um, because a global pandemic is it's not an easy thing. It's a, it's a sort of a mini-legged beast. What, what was the... Uh, I'm trying not to say germ, but I think I'm going to say it. <laughs> um, what was the germ that sparked it? Um, do you want to go first, Fiona? Hmm. Oh, right. Um, well, I suppose the thing that interests me most and has done since the Christchurch quakes has been the way in which extreme events cause our civilization to creak. I'm interested in the creaking of civilization and on the, in the thinness of that veneer of civilization and how it's exposed and how the weaknesses and strengths of our society are exposed when that stress is imposed, whether it's flooding or a quake, or this pandemic. Um, but I suppose the, the thing that triggered the writing, really, was recalling, I always like thinking about things. I'm a very chaotic writer. I collect odd bits and pieces. I'm not a planning writer. I just sit down in the morning and see what's there, basically. And I'd, I'd been curious about viruses and bacteria for a very long time. Years ago, I read Hans Zinser's amazing book called Rats, Lice and History. I've always been fascinated by the sort of butterfly effect, by the way some tiny organism can destabilise and influence human history. That's been something that I've been interested in for many, many years. So I was curious about the pandemic, about COVID, about the experience of it, and I started reading around, and I recalled from very distant English lectures reading about Giovanni Boccaccio, who was a 14th century Italian scholar, and how he'd written something, I thought, about a pandemic. So I went back and reread the beginning of Boccaccio's amazing Decameron, this searing portrait of a society absolutely reeling and destroyed when a bacteria hits without any restraints, without MIQ, modern science, and all those things in place, what a virus or a bacteria is capable of inflicting on human populations. So that was where the novel started. Mm, thank you. Yeah. That's great. Great to hear about that, um, like first off about that intertextuality where you've got, you know, you're bouncing off another an existing text mm. and um, that really um, comes across so strongly in the novel and it's a beautiful 
Yeah, thank you. Yes. Stephanie, what about you? How did, what sparked it all? Um, well, um, you know, up here in Auckland, we had rather a few more, didn't we? Well, one more lockdown than everyone else. And, um, and a long one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and it seemed interminable. And um, I, like many of us, was um, quite bored and um, quite um, worried and quite depressed. And uh, so I needed cheering up. And um, so, I, <laughs> so um, Kind is a funny book, actually. It's a, it is, um, I, uh, I didn't take too serious a, um, a, a approach to it. And there were little things that sort of sparked. I wrote it through, so I, I was writing it through the lockdowns. Is, that's when I wrote the book, through uh, 2020 and 2021. And... Um, you know, there were little things that happened that uh, just sort of sparked, like the, um, he was actually a Labour Party MP, you might remember, in Dunedin, who went for a little bike ride. <laughs> and um, I made it him a National Party one, because that's more, <laughs> that's more fun. And, um, and I, and I, and I, and he didn't go for a little bike ride, he goes for quite a big bike ride, and um, gets himself into a whole lot of trouble. And there were other things that I'd sort of been thinking about. Um, I, I, I love, I've often, a lot of my novels have female villains because we make the best villains. And um, one thing we're very good at is fraud. And um, so I, I, I had been kind of following this case in Australia of this, um, it, of this young woman who had been having an affair with the married CEO of a, a television station, Channel 9 actually, in, in Australia. And then she was she was done for for fraud. Um, unlike Jolene, the character in my book, she didn't go to jail though. But then Jolene, of course, has done a number of other really terrible things. Why <laughs> she ends up in jail? Um, but yeah, it was just you know like I think for most of us, a lot of a lot of things you know that was sort of coming together over that period. And also for me, my husband and I had this little window of being empty nesters. We are now no longer empty nesters again, but it was it was it was through that period, and suddenly the, I had this peace, you know, that I hadn't had for thirty four years. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so sort of bouncing off that, what about the the experience of writing almost in real time? Yeah, well, I, um, did, I had I, to keep track mm, of things, you know, like for mm. my private eye, when, when, when he goes, he flies from Christchurch to, um, to the north um, and to Kitty Kitty. And so he, he had to be able to do that. You know, we had to have gone down to level three. Mm. You know, there were, I, I knew that people's memories um, were, were pretty fresh, you know, so I couldn't really be fudging things that mm. we weren't, you know, we, people had to be allowed to do. You know, as um, my private eye remarks at one point, we New Zealanders are very biddable, and we are. We mm. do what we're told mostly. Mm. Yep, good job. So, <laughs> um, but but that I mean, the sense of just things sort of unfolding as as you wrote the no the novels, and I think that comes across in both novels. The sort of sense of immediacy, and I'm wondering if um, for Fiona, for you, you had the same sort of sense of like this is happening, and now I'm going to write about it, and now this is happening. Well, actually, playing, well, actually, no, they've, they've got something else. <laughs> um, okay. It's not really a COVID novel. Um, it's, it's set in the future. But, it's right? set in mm. the future, and the um, because for me, COVID, this pandemic is just a symptom. It's only a symptom. It's just one. Um, 
It's a symptom of the general malaise. It's, it's, the, pandemics happen because we create the conditions for their spread. We have overcrowded cities, we have um, weakened populations, and then we speed that virus at great speed around the planet and drop it into vulnerable populations that aren't protected. So um, COVID wasn't really what I was interested in. It was the idea of the pandemic. It's just one aspect of general chaos that we're living within. And the thing that fascinated me was the way people respond. I'm always interested in the way people respond to extreme events like earthquakes or a pandemic or a flood. It's the human response that really fascinates me. Um, COVID is just one pandemic. There will be others. They're a natural event, like an earthquake, like a volcanic explosion. You have to expect them. And it's how we react each time. And so in one sense, it is a COVID novel because it was written because I was sitting in a warm little room in a sunny city in lockdown, admittedly, but safe, unaffected. I have a friend in New York who's also a novelist, and I wrote to her early on um, because I'd been seeing footage on the television and read articles about what was happening in New York, that startling emptying of the city. So I wrote to my friend and said, I just hope everything's okay for you. And she wrote back instantly and said, actually, no, my father's just died. My mother, who was also a novelist, is in her apartment and we can't go to her. And we are in our apartment, overwhelmed by grief. And I got this message and I wasn't overwhelmed by grief. I was sitting there contemplating writing a novel. Um, I don't think my friend was thinking about writing a novel. They need calm and space. So this is a COVID novel written in particular political and social circumstances. And it's a COVID novel because it was en enabled by Jacinda Ardern. I think her decisiveness, her strategic thinking, the clarity with which she saw what was happening and that quick response, waiting for the vaccines to be prepared. That's what enabled this book and I suspect large number of other books that are out there on the book stand today. And I don't think, I think that she has been vilely treated by thugs on the parliamentary lawn and also by a number of journalists who've used words to denigrate and sneer. And I want to say that today. So, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Fiona. So it's our COVID, our version yes. of COVID, different yeah. from anywhere else in the world. Mm. On that note, can we hear, hear some of your novel? Would you oh, like to read? All right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, okay. It's a rather odd little book, this one. <laughs> um, it borrows from Boccaccio the idea of a preface, um, which is non-fiction and which is a description of COVID, of living, of a novelist working and living in a city that's being, in, is in the midst of a pandemic. Um, but the main, the, the guts of, of um, Boccaccio's Decameron are a hundred stories that are told by people who are escaping the plague by agreeing 
to go to a villa in the country. It's set in Florence. It was written in 1351. The plague, the bubonic plague, happened there in 1348-49. Um, it went on to kill millions, as everybody here will know. Uh, a terrible event. But it begins after this non-fiction prologue, which describes the horrors of the actual plague in Florence, Boccaccio introduces his fictions. He moves into fiction, and he tells a hundred stories told by ten people over ten days in a beautiful villa outside Florence, where they've gone to escape the horrors of the city. And um, they meet these people in a church. They meet in the church of Santa Maria Novella one morning after Mass. Three women meet. Um, they're young, they're beautiful, they're all between 18 and 28. They're beautiful, they're wealthy, they're privileged. And one of them has a villa, and she suggests that they go there to escape the plague. So that's where I start my novel too. I have a non-fiction prologue, and then I have a group of people who meet, but they don't meet in a church because we live in a different society and we have a different faith, and our faith is economics. And so they don't meet in a church, they meet in a supermarket. <laughs> this is the very beginning, so. 10 o'clock on a Thursday morning in a year that is not this year, not the year when the writer writes nor the year when the reader reads. It's another year made up of other numbers entirely, sun, moon and stars and calm alignment and on earth, a supermarket. Temple of commerce, proof if any were needed of global reach, the supremacy of choice and an abiding faith in the doctrines of supply and demand. Seas have been stripped to produce 15 varieties of flavoured tuna. Rivers have dried to dust bowls to produce milk, cream, a dozen kinds of butter and 60 kinds of cheese. Primeval jungle has been cleared to make way for soybean, rice and palm oil. And here it is, Earth's bounty, gathered along aisles of polished concrete, blessed with eternal life. It lines the shells in cartons, tins and jars, each marked with one of ten billion possible variations of light and dark, line and space. By the farthest wall stands the tomb of the unknown battery fowl, the hormonally enhanced cattle beast, the blessed pig, who spent her anchorite's life in a steel crate. Behold the bread, croissant and iced bun, sandwich loaf and ciabatta roll. Behold the arch beneath the arching roof. Behold the apogee of human invention, the culmination of the narrative that began with the dawdle out of Africa. The waves of want have receded. Plagues have swept across the face of the earth and storm and war and the shelves of the supermarket were stripped the aisles became bare-boned and bereft, and then the waves receded, the planes began to fly again, the ships began to sail, the trucks rolled back into the loading bays, and the shelves were restocked. There are gaps if you look closely, no tinned sardines, no canned tomatoes, no maple syrup, no cashew nuts this morning. There have been many such disappearances. Flour has vanished on occasion, as have coffee beans and basmati rice and cocoa, but this morning the shelves have been a full. The illusion is almost perfect. The old faith has been restored. 
There are summer flowers by the sliding doors and buckets and posies. There are fresh fruit and vegetables imported and local, organic and organic. And overhead, the sound system plays those old, slow, familiar songs that repeated studies have proved comfort the customers and persuade them to tarry a little longer in the cheese section, to spend 38% more than they would if the music were fast or familiar. At this moment, on this Thursday morning, it's harvest moon. The trolleys trundle placidly down aisle one, past the bread and the deli, up aisle two, past the wine and confectionery, up, turn, down, turn, up, turn, down, at the sweet bovine pace of an ox dragging a plough across a field. A man is surveying the biscuit section. His trolley is parked awkwardly across the width of the aisle. Philippa is forced to stop. He does not notice, engrossed as he is in reading the label on a packet of Tim Tams. Excuse me, she says, because she also wants to buy biscuits, crackers, sesame or rye to have with cheese or some pate from the deli. The man peers more closely at the packet. His lips move, muttering, what on earth does anyone need to know in such detail about a Tim Tam? It's a biscuit, for God's sake. A chocolate biscuit, that's it. He's one of those withered men. Legs like dry kindling, polo shirt tucked into the waistband of knee-length shorts, hair scraped in damp strands over a pink scalp, mainstay of the bowling club, treasurer of the local branch of Rotary, a tidy man who amputates the branches from trees on the boundary fence and mows his lawn with savage intent as if every blade might fight back, a man who's raised two terrorised kids and kept a lifetime grip on a dim, compliant wife. Philippa knows this within seconds of their encounter because she's known him, his kind, all her life, from the time when the teachers inexplicably picked him every time to hand out the reading books and bring in the milk, warm and stale from the school gate. And here he is again, blocking everyone's way, and despite Neil and the harvest moon, she feels an irrational anger rise, a temptation to ram his bloody trolley into the back of his scrawny legs. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> so brilliant. Hey, sh should we chat a bit more? And then we'd we'll <laughs> love to hear you read in a minute, Stephanie. Um, just, it's really interesting hearing this sort of voice coming through, and I'm aware that um, character has so much to do with both these novels, and I feel like there's quite a lot to unpack. <laughs> around character with both of them. Um, firstly, that your, both of your sort of main protagonists are writers in different ways, and that, um, that your novel, uh, Fiona, starts, you know, the novelist is making a novel, and in kind, Jolie is a letter writer. So it's an epistolary, I can't say that word, you know, <laughs> novel, you know, that epistolary novel. Um, is, is that a... Is that a coincidence? Is this something to do with COVID <laughs> catching? <laughs> that you both have writer, writer main protagonists. I'm just joking, really. Can you each talk about why, why you chose these, these characters as writer protagonists? You go first, do, you, do you want to go I'll first, Stephanie? Yeah. Well, Jolene, Jolene's letters, she's writing from Wirri Women's Correctional Centre. <laughs> and... Um, and and in 2023, so you know she's. This is some time after all the 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 action. So she is reflecting on um, what she was up to 
through the pandemic, but also through her childhood, that she was a, um, a, a kid, you know, from the wrong side of the tracks. Her, her father um, has done time too um, in jail and her mother is probably dead. She was a, a, you know, a druggie that took off to Southeast Asia sort of years ago. And, um, and so Jolene has had ne never had anything like the opportunities that her dear friend Kerri-Ann has had. And Kerri-Ann is who she's writing to from prison. And for a period of Jolene's life, um, the Kerry Ann's parents fostered her um, as, a as a child, but they never formally adopted her. Um, so, you know, that that's really why... It's just that, you know, I had to have a way of Jolene to be in prison and communicating, trying to communicate with, with, um, with Kerry Ann. So she's, yeah, she, she's not really a writer, but she mm, can write no, But she writes. Yes, she yes. does. Well, she's pleading with, I don't want to give anything away because it's a sort yeah. of a thriller. No, but, you, um, but you, you know, but she, there's, <laughs> she, she, know, she suspects that, she suspects something yeah. about Kerry and she yeah. and she's she turns yeah. out to be quite I mean right. I, I love that aspect of it that she's she's not a sort of writer she doesn't publish books but she's a writer mm. and her voice comes across so strongly on the page and which is the case with most people don't you think mm. like when they write yeah, the when you write something letters, you can just get yeah. it down yeah so and, I, and, I love and in that. the prison and I mean, it felt very real mm. with they in in our prisons in New Zealand um, they don't generally have access of course to computers mm. uh, so um, you're, you're given a stamp um, I think you're allowed two or three a week or something you can you can write you're allowed to write letters so she writes it down and sends it off in the mm. post and she yeah. loses bits of it too you know mm. where she yeah. says you know thank you this is and also Kerry Ann doesn't write back mm. because yeah. by this stage Kerry Ann's so furious with her that um, but you but know you, she you does at the very end go to visit Jolene in the jail you don't need to hear from Carrie Ann. <laughs> and, but, you, but your um, main character is a novelist. Well, the, oh. in a meta kind of way, right? In very meta. Yeah. Yes. I'm never, I'm never been quite sure what meta was, to be honest. But um, we've forgotten what meta was yeah. from the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> right. um, it was a thing, wasn't it? Um, it was a thing. Yeah. The, the, the novel, as I say, has got this non-fiction frame. It's what. Uh, in, in Boccaccio, it's called, the Italians simply call it la cornice. It means the frame. It's the non-fiction bit that goes around this luminous story of young people playing music, drinking wine, eating, um, entertaining themselves. And it's the horror, it's the darkness and the horror that provides that frame. That's what gives the Decameron, it's power. A lot of the stories are actually really horrible stories. They've got, they come from a different mindset and a different morality. But that frame, that non-fiction frame, is what sets that story, that luminous story of people at play. Um, just in the same way that during COVID, there were these wonderful things that happened. It was an amazingly creative period when people actually stepped back and were silent and were quiet, it, it felt very fruitful. I keep meeting people who say, look, I know it was awful for some people. Wasn't it wonderful? Because <laughs> you know, there were these wonderful things. We had a CD of music composed in Britain by a young woman in her bedroom with her brother who was in another town. 
wonderful CD of this music. There were all these creative things that were happening. So the frame in this book is where the novelist sits, making up a story. Um, because I wanted to talk about that act of creativity, how you write something. What's the point of making things up when things are looking pretty dire? All the statistics are pointing in a pretty dark direction at the moment, I think. And although we can sort of ignore it for a while, it's there in the background. And it's what gives such poignancy to events like this. That's what gave such poignancy to events and to the creativity during the time of lockdown, I think. So she's a character, the novelist, she's, she's me, but I called her the novelist because I wanted to separate her slightly from me. I wanted her to sit in a, in a novel. And then in the centre of the book, the ten, there are these ten characters. That's something I borrowed from Boccaccio. They all end up in a bay, in a, in a, a crib, as we say, <laughs> in a crib, in a bay, um, not unlike Otanarito, where I lived for 30 years, out on Banks Peninsula. And they're escaping a plague that's coming to their city. Not COVID, but a hemorrhagic version of disease. And they have gone to the crib, Philippa's crib, which she's inherited from her great aunt. And um, they go out there and they entertain themselves. And the thing is that they're not young and beautiful. They're people in their 70s. Because people in their 70s are just so interesting. They've got these long <laughs> lives and complicated relationships with one another. And I'm always finding now I've moved to Dunedin that I'm talking to people about someone and it turns out they were married, you know, back in 1980 or something like that. And I'm always putting my foot in it completely. So, um, yeah, so they're, they're, they're interesting, complicated characters. And there are 10 of them. Um, but they're not just people who know one another. Uh, or who have got that kind of fictional life. Um, what I was interested in was the creaking of civilization. So all the characters represent some, well, it sounds a bit dry. I hope it's not when you're reading it, but they represent some aspect of civilization. So Philippa is a lawyer, she's an ex judge, and she, because law is what underpins everything in our civilization, it's the fabric of words which define the principles and ideals by which we agree to live in a community, whatever that is, either a regional one or a national one or a global one. So it's that fabric of words that's our net underneath us, which has created the civilization that we're part of. And um, so she's a judge. There's also someone who's an architect. There's someone who's an artist, there's someone who's a musician, a singer on a cruise ship. <laughs> um, so they, they represent different aspects of the civilised life, the, the civilised life that we aim for. There's a kind of ideal of how life should be. Um, and that's what I was wanting to do. So the characters aren't particular, aren't just there because they know one another. They're representative. They're yes. representative yes. in a way. Yeah. Um, I think that comes across brilliantly. And they're under stress. Yeah. Yes, that's wonderful. Um, you, you've each um, used multiple storytellers, like different points of view, which is kind of interesting. But um, also um, your characters are under a certain kind of duress. And it's interesting in, in your novel, Fiona, that they've sort of gone to, the, they've gone to this place to um, kind of 
chill out, you know, but they're still under this enormous duress. And in kind, the characters are really under duress as well. I find that very interesting that, um, and, that and the characters will do things that they, they're kind of ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Mm. So I wanted to ask you, Stephanie, about how, um, you, you've often done that in your novels. You have a, a sort of ordinary, ordinary kind of storyteller who is sort of moved to do extraordinary things. And I think that's, that um, mm. sense of this person could just be you or me is what has drawn people to your fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but in, the, in this novel, it's, it's sort of, it's more extreme. Like people are doing, they're doing more extreme things. Can you talk about that? Well, it's a, it's a, it, it is, uh, you know, I, I, writers often, we don't know what we've written really, even with a clue. Um, but um, I, 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 I wouldn't necessarily call it a satire, but it certainly has satirical uh, as, aspects to it. And, um, and you know, that, that, that the COVID time was a time of, of extremes. You know, I think many people experienced... You know, there was a lot of marriage breakdown. Um, there were the, co- the cases of child abuse are only just starting to go through the courts now. Uh, you know, people um, locked up in their tower blocks with little kids um, and losing the plot. You know, uh, I, you know, I think I think the um, the 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 long-term effects of what we went through um, will be felt for years and but then maybe when we get the next one we'll 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 deal with it better there, were, there was this lovely word that I heard through that period um, and I did manage to squeeze into the book um, the anthropause uh, which was what that era was I mean I had this wonderful experience in, in Grey Lynn where I made uh, Tui made friends with me and he would come and sit on the railing outside my study and he would talk away to me. I suppose he was a boy. I can't really tell the difference with, with Tui's. And, um, and, and in fact, my husband thought I had a recording of a Tui playing on my computer, but it was just this little chap and, and he would come nearly every day. I wasn't feeding him or anything. And, you know, and that was the anthropause because you don't see Tui in Greyland, really. I mean, you do sometimes, but not often. But it was quiet. It was, it was quiet. no traffic. And, and mm. my, I know with one of my little granddaughters, you know, she was born in 2020. And so, um, you know, when the planes started flying again and the helicopters started flying again, she was, you know, now they're just kind of all blasé. But, you know, she, at the time it was mm. an extraordinary thing. So, it, it, you know, it's, it, it was for those of us lucky enough to have a roof over our heads mm. It was a peaceful time. Mm. Read some for us, please, Stephanie. <laughs> Thank you. This is not peaceful, okay? Mm. Uh, this is um, actually continuing on the um, theme of food. Okay. Um, this, this is my MP. He's called Lyle Hull. And um, he's an MP for a, a, a um, fictitious electorate in Christchurch. He's up in the Southern Alps, and he's been caught by a pair of lesbian preppers who um, are Americans, and he's very short, and they've put him in a cage. (laughs) Anyway, he's been there for some time. Okay, one morning, not long after the big white one went out on her snowmobile, Lyle fell into the half-sleep that was his new mental state during daylight hours. Cold metal roused him, icy above an eyebrow and the slit of the balaclava. A spoon and the little woman sitting beside the cage with a steaming bowl. You like oats? She loaded the spoon, held it towards his mouth. She don't like him, so I made it just for you and me, organic. 
she made a small moue of, of exasperation and put the bowl down so that she could use the freed hand to pull the balaclava away from his mouth. Why do you... The rest of his question was gummed up by the insertion of porridge, almost hot enough to burn, but palatable, sweetened with honey and some type of spice, nutmeg or cinnamon. It brought back memories of the normal world. Christmas cake, sprinkles on top of a steaming cappuccino. She watched him carefully. He supposed for signs of enjoyment. You like it? Why do you and your friend... Another mouthful plugged his question. You do like it. I can tell. Good boy, Lyle. She reached through the bars and patted his head, and he caught a whiff of perfume from his wrist, her wrist. A bright scarf covered her hair, and she wore a red and white gingham apron. He wondered again if any of this was real. Was he lying somewhere, barely alive, hallucinating? You look nice today, he offered. A guarded expression entered her previously shining, nurturing eyes. He had gone too far. Perhaps she had a history of abuse from some man. Perhaps they both did, which was one of the reasons they'd decided to hide themselves in the Southern Alps. Why are you two so careful with your... Another mouthful. This one delivered not quite as gently as its forerunners. He swallowed quickly, went on. Diets, when you think the world is about to end. It's all organic this and vegan that. The young woman sighed and looked around carefully to see if anyone was listening. How could there be? There was no one here. It's the way she likes it, she whispered. That sort of food. But what do you like? He kept his voice gentle, neutral. She shook her head thoughtfully but didn't seem able to formulate an answer. She fed him another mouthful. Where did you two get acquainted? Illinois Psychiatric. She said it as simply as if it was the school they'd gone to. <laughs> A hospital. She was alarmed suddenly, the spoon clattering against the bowl. Her hearing might be better than his. She might be able to hear the snowmobile returning. The big one wouldn't want her sitting alone with him, maybe, or feeding him, since she seemed to begrudge him every mouthful. I hope it was a nice hospital. He didn't want this one upset. He didn't want her telling the other woman that he had been unkind. Be kind, like Jacinda said. <laughs> Above all, be kind. Her lower lip was trembling and her usually smooth brow was creased. Hey, hey, it's all right, don't worry. The spoon was retrieved, scraped around to catch up the last of the porridge and the load inserted into his mouth. What's your name? She was fumbling with the balaclava, trying to get it up over his mouth. You know my name. Why won't you tell me yours? We could be friends. Now, no point in me getting to know you. Besides, we don't like men. Don't you? Why not? Everything bad in the world is your fault, especially white men like you. Yes, you're quite right. It's all our fault. Your friend will be cross with you for feeding me. She was pulling the cover over the cage, leaving him again in semi-darkness. Are you there? But don't worry. Our secret. I won't tell her. There was a moment when he thought she might answer him, but she didn't. Inside there was the knock of the instead there was the knock of the spoon in the bowl, her footsteps, and then the clunk of the heavy door that led down into the bunker. The rest of the day to pass, and then the interminable night. A breeze had come up, billowing softly at the cover, in and out, like breath, like company. Mm. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, it's a thriller. Um, one reviewer suggested that um, COVID was so dramatic already that it didn't need any sort of fancy genres like thriller kind of attached to it. 
There's enough going on. Um, which I don't think Ellen or Catton would agree with that, seeing Burnham Wood's a thriller too. Um, but it is interesting, Stephanie, that you, um, a lot of your novels have been sort of comedies of manners, not all of them. And so, in a way, do you see this as a departure for you in terms of genre? No, I, it remind, I think, you know, when I look at all of them, they, they sort of um, do fit into different camps. And this is a bit like the shag incident. Mm. You know, I was in, hearing that in there, actually. <laughs> yeah, in that, in that it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very much a sort of topical... Um, you know the the, the era that they're, they're they're moving in and the things that they're consumed by the things that they everyone is worrying about thinking they've all got different concerns of course but that you know they're very contemporary to what, how we are now in in New Zealand so mm. Mm. Um, let, let's just go back to um, I'd like to talk about character again I feel like these are such character driven novels I think that's sort of an endless topic that we could explore so um Fiona, in, a, in an interview that, um, uh, that Morin Rout did with you on the ANZ Lit site, mm -hmm. you described the writing about the Christchurch earthquakes, which, of course, was another experience for you of sort of writing the now. Mm -hmm. um, and you were sort of really quick off the rank doing that. I think maybe one of the first writers to write in different ways and particularly imaginatively about the Christchurch earthquakes. And you said... Um, that the earthquakes exposed the reality of where I'd been living. And it seems to me that this pandemic has did that for us. And I'm wondering if for each of you, but you first, Fiona, um, is that how you saw it, that it kind of exposed something as sort of, to us, sort of like ripping off a bandage or something? Mm. Well, first of all, actually, there was a lot of writing going on in Christchurch um, after the quakes, but it largely wasn't fiction. I remember going to a planning meeting for the festival that year, and it was we were it was going to be in tents in Hagley Park, um, and we met in another tent somewhere in town. We were talking about it, and there were lots of um, fiction writers there discussing what we might do and how we might arrange a festival. Because Moran was very keen to have a writers' festival in the middle of all this, you know, cones and destruction and whatever. Um, and so we were all there to try and think of ideas. And, um, but people were writing poetry because poetry seemed appropriate to the season. Poetry is where the welling up of emotion just finds its voice. And um, people were writing poems, partly because it's what we do when we're in an extreme emotional state, and we were. Um, only later, though I think looking back, do you realise quite how devastating it all was, um, but also because it gives you a kind of structure, it gives you a neat structure on a page where you can control emotion when it's threatening to get out of hand. So poetry was a way of doing that, and also it simply takes less time. Like I was saying before, novels take time. For me, it takes about 18 months to write a novel. I've written about, I've written eight, not nearly as many as Stephanie, but I've written 16 books. And they, they take me a long, long time. I'm a very slow, messy writer. And so, um, yeah, if, if writing novels, particularly when you're assembling lots of little intricate parts, trying to put them into a structure, which is what I do. I, I think of a structure first, and then I put the shapes, little bits of random things together into this shape. Um, so that's how I approach the whole writing process. 
and I've forgotten the question that you asked okay, me. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's very interesting to know that that poetry was a thing that was sort of going. Yes. In a way, it's um, perhaps a bit more immediate, as you say. Like writing a novel t takes a long time. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was I, when I when I was um, writing the books about the quakes, the non-fiction and the fiction titles about the quakes. I started looking at other catastrophes and what had happened in terms of writing in response to those. And I, 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 read, up, I read quite a lot about the Blitz in London because I'd read Kate Atkinson's book um, about what she talked about the Blitz. She had characters in the Blitz and characters, a terrible scene in which a house is destroyed and there's an eye looking up. I remember that scene particularly. But I suddenly realised I had read very little that was about the Blitz, and yet um, London, as a city like Florence, stuffed with writers. And I think there's only there's one book by Graham Greene, which came out in about 1942 or 43, and then it's Elizabeth Bowen in 1948. Because you need time and you need quiet and you need calm, which is why my friend in New York wasn't writing fiction, wasn't writing a novel. She didn't have the mental energy for it. Um, and so, yes, they take a different kind of condition to be able to write a novel. I know there are people who pop them out in six and a half weeks and sell millions, but um, I think most novelists spend quite a long time sitting at their desk in front of a screen or scribbling on a piece of A4 paper or whatever it is they do, putting it all together. It's a long, slow assembly job. Mm. Thank you. Um, I was at... Uh, Stephanie's book launch uh, a couple of weeks ago and Steve Braunius described um, the kind of scenes and milieu that Stephanie writes as Johnsonville, <laughs> um, which I thought was really apt and I couldn't imagine why no one had thought of this before. Um, can you comment on that, Stephanie? <laughs> it's, just, it's just Steve being silly. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, no, I can't even really remember what he was on about. No, I, I think <laughs> he, he, he I, did go on about how there were 11 perspectives in, in, in yeah. kind. And I sat there thinking, hey, he's got that wrong. But then later I counted the money's quite right. I mean, there, there's only uh, two people who, 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 who are talking to the reader from first in the first person, which is Jolene, of course, because she's writing her letters from Wirri Prison. And then there's also this wealthy American who's on a, um, a boat of very rich people heading for New Zealand um, uh, because all the planes have stopped flying and, you know, there was that idea that we were the safest place on earth and, um, you, know, that, that, you know, that we would be besieged by wealthy Americans trying to build more bunkers in the South Island. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, they're the only people that address the reader out in the first person. So the, the, I think, you know, the, um, the, the, the reader knows where they are with each of these uh, kind of closed third-person narratives that involve all the other characters but as I, well. But I think it's a sort of Kiwi vernacular. I think that's what he's getting at that is coming across. With, to, what with, was with jo about. Yeah. Johnsonville, yeah. yes, and that the yeah. people that mm. in my novels that are, could only ever be mm. New, New Zealanders. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, I have set a, a few of my books in Australia, and I did have a sort of brief, brief kind of moment of something it was probably some kind of mental illness where I, I um, <laughs> wrote wrote a book as an Australian and sold it to Harper Collins, 
um, and they or an agent did. And but I did have to come clean eventually um, that who I really was, and uh, and that was that was Lily Woodhouse. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, um, could we just sort of then briefly touch on, this is sort of a technique thing, and I, I'm curious about how both of you manage writing so many characters. Like, how, how do you do it? How, what's, your, what's your secret to write so many characters and get them all sound, sounding different? <laughs> well, like Jonah, um, we both wrote plays, didn't we? Yes. Ah, and I, and yes, I think I that when you've that had that sort yeah. of training um, mm. um, of writing for actors, mm. it, it's such a joy to write in a voice. Mm. I sort of sometimes wish I could write more in an, or, an, an authorial voice. Mm. You know, I, I'm not very good at it. Um, just, so just to sort of intervene, I, I don't know if people here know that, but both of you have a th uh, theatre background as uh, actors, writing plays, um, and, and training, right? Like, um, oh, so it's quite brief. deep. It's, you know, I mean, it runs deep in your, in your background, right? So that's very interesting that that's, that's your answer to that question. Yeah. Well, it just, I think it helps you. I think if you've written for the stage or, or mm. just for actors to perform, you, you learn a lot about voice mm. and, and, and perspective. Mm. It's where I started because my, I, I started when I was very young. I used to write poems and things, but I stopped when I was 18 because I showed my poems to the, um, a friend of my boyfriend's who'd had a poem in Landfall and knew what he was talking about. And he laughed at my poem, rightly so, it was a terrible poem. And I just stopped and um, didn't really write again until my dad died and I found myself writing poems under that pressure. Um, yeah, I, hmm, I've forgotten where I'm going with this. Uh, yeah, that's okay. That's tragic. I think that's yes. quite a common story of people having being sort of just like squashed by someone, you know. Yes, yes. But good thing you bounce back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Hey, um, I, I think it's time for some uh, questions from the audience. Um, okay. Yeah. Has, so how are we going to do this? Is there going to be a microphone going round, or will people just um, the back, yell out? Stand up yeah. There, or shout at us. Yeah. Has anyone got a, a question? Yeah. Yes, it's fine. Yes, you can shout. Thank you. Yeah. I used to be a maths prof, so I can. Okay. Uh, Fiona, um, during the lockdowns, yes. we all had uh, long walks around the house uh, and uh, looking at the garden. We even memorized the, the letter boxes of the other houses. And there were all these silent teddy bears mm. from all the windows, which was uh, just uh, amazing as creativity mm. and uh, um, thinking about the children. Mm. But they were silent. From this point of view, they were a bit spooky. Mm. And uh, those teddy bears reminded me of a silent, mysterious witness mm. that you put uh, in the Klein and Paul Street uh, the heel mm. that uh, never speaks, uh, never goes anywhere, and is one of the best characters of literature. Mm. Do you see any comparison between the, sil the silent of a teddy bear witness <laughs> and the silent <laughs> witness that is the heel? Oh, right. While uh, there was such upheaval in the life of humans. Yes. Um, this is referring to decline and fall on Savage Street, in which um, 
the sections about human history over 100 years. It's a history of New Zealand from 1908, a kind of social history of New Zealand told through the people who live in a house. But interleaving it at each point, there's the story of an eel. I'm fascinated by eels. I didn't... Eel in the deep. I know, I put eels everywhere. Um, they're my thing. I find them... Um, they're such an extraordinary creature. And when we were children at the farm, we used to torment them. We'd drag them out on bits of string and, you know, and watch them wriggle on the pank. And, but when I found out as an adult about their life, about the way they start off as a little glassy creature about the size of my fingernail, and they come on this huge current all the way down from the tropics and find their place in a river or a creek. Um, at Atanarito, we had them in the creek um, not very big ones, but quite big. And they lived there for a roughly a human life, about the same amount of time. And their lives are quiet and unnoticed, un, un, by and large. Especially the big female longfins, which live for 80, 90 years, maybe longer years. So um, I loved the contrast between the busyness and the agitation of the human life on the banks the constant changes of event, the big social events, the strikes and the wars and all these things that were happening, these painful things, and then the eel just weaving her way slowly through until one night there's some sort of change in the water and she's got blue, blue under her eyes so she'll be able to see in the dark and her face, her head flattened, is flattened down and she stopped eating and instead of guts, she has all these eggs inside her. And she, she swims in the dark down through the creek where she came 80, 90, 100 years before. And then she swims all the way back to the tropics. And there she sort of explodes. And all these eggs are born and fertilised and they come back again. I find them magical. So it's sorry, so there are eels. It's so moving. It is. Yeah. It's a lovely mm. analogy. So. Um, to get back to your question, yes, I, I, I love, I love yeah. the feeling of um, contrast, of different kinds of experience of life. Yes. Thank you. Any more questions? Make it a brief Sorry, question, though, please. Yeah. <laughs> yes, one over here. She's, Zoe in the book is a 13-year-old who arrives amongst all these old people with her grandmother, who's kidnapped her, basically. And um, I, it's not a commentary. I'm not commenting on anybody in the book. Um, she is a child who is like my granddaughters, um, completely in love with her friends. And she's been removed from her friends. Her family have become convinced that there are going to be um, enormous um, sort of dragon creatures emerging from an island off South America. And they're going to witness it. They're going to be part of this great revival, one of these slightly hysterical um, um, responses to the crisis and the anxiety that the world is feeling. 
um, and she doesn't want to go, she doesn't want to lose her friends. So she's a child who's desperately trying to contact through her phone, trying to make contact from this remote bay where there's no connection. Um, I wanted her to be someone who's deeply poignant. She's someone, because that's what the books, that's what all this writing and everything that we're doing is for. It's for them, it's for these children who are coming through. And if you really want to know what the trigger for the book was, it was a poem written by my granddaughter when she was seven, which is about, I've got it in the thing, I, I, shall I, I, no, I won't read it, it'll take too long, but um, it's a poem about how, she said the line in it that got me, she said, in the future, if we have a future, and I was just devastated to see a seven-year-old writing this, and it was pinned on the wall in her classroom by her teacher, a very mature understanding of possible disaster. But Zoe is trying to be with her friends. She's an optimist. She wants things to be better. And she's the whole point of the book. And Thank she's you. who leads everybody out at the end. Yeah, that's why. So it's not Another question? Uh, well, I, I have one. <laughs> um, I have two actually, but just the first one. Um, I'm just I'm wondering if after this experience, it, in a way, it feels like a bit of a watershed because of the most extreme times that we've been through. Will will writing be the same for either of you? Do you want to go first, Stephanie? Has it changed? In other words, what next? <laughs> um, I'm writing another sort of crime thrillerish one. Um, that's set in 1951 and 1952, which were the years that we reintroduced the death penalty. Um, and uh, and it's, it's called literacy at the moment. I don't know what its final title will be. So no, I, I don't feel that it's changed um, my process. If I can't even know if I've got a process um, at all. But I think I think that there, that there will be, uh, you know, as 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 we have witnessed, and you know, novel after novel after novel set during the Second World War, novel after novel after novel set during the Vietnam War. I, I, you know, I think that people will continue to write about this period that um, we have gone through. Um, particularly, I mean, there's a lot of non good non-fiction coming out of New York at the moment about what happened there because as Fiona was saying it was just so devastating you know bodies piled up and I mean we didn't see because of Jacinda we didn't see anything like that and um, you know so I, I think it is a I think it is a, 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 a it will be a um, an era that um, that we we that writers continue to and in fact in my afterward uh, in kind I talk about a lecture I gave in this very room um, at the writers festival um, last year or was it the year before about um, how there will be a tsunami of uh, COVID literature and and there already is I mean there's endless um, poems short stories um, you know writers try and make sense of the of Ultimately, is I suppose that's what we're doing, trying to make sense of the world around us, or of things that have happened in in the in in the distant past or the more recent past. So it will be a. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Is it a trope? Thir Thirty seconds. <laughs> um, well, I'm 
I'm sort of beginning to collect bits of material for another book, but it's not going to be fiction. It's going to be non-fiction. I want to really actively engage with the way language is being used in this country and the way the story of our country is being framed. And I want to talk about that. I want to examine it. It mightn't come to anything. I never know when I start if it's going to be a book or not, but that's what I'm interested in at the moment, um, how language is being used by specific writers. Thank you very much. Thank you, both of you. This has been an amazing session. I, I just sort of jotted down a few notes as we've been going, things that have re, um, really sort of leapt out at me. The creaking of civilization, warm room and lockdown, the good fortune of being in New Zealand, strip supermarkets, the high concept of a thriller. So um, thank you so much. Um, and thank you all for coming along. So Stephanie and Fiona are going to be at the signing table, um, just, I think, out there, so you can go and buy their books and get, um, have a chat, have it signed by them. Um, if, uh, this has been a free event, um, and I've been asked to say on behalf of the festival that um, if you enjoyed this uh, session, please consider making a small donation via QR code or koha to support championing, championing writers like these in the future. No reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Please join me in thanking Stephanie and Fiona. Thank you.